Here's a few words with Jesse Bond of Southwest Fire Academy. Hey, man. Hey, man. How you doing? Good. Good. Why don't you give me a, a little update on what's going on at SFA? Perfect. Yeah, I'll keep her short and sweet. So just our typical courses still on the go. Uh, we're excited about the Smoga Showing Conference coming up. I think there's still some spots available with Brass's class for the Advanced Force Bowl entry. Sign up through True North Fools for that one. We have a Hazmat Tech starting September 25th and Firefighter Survival and right October 2nd to the 6th. And there's some other stuff, modern fire behavior and advanced forceful entry in October as well. But maybe I can hit those on your next podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 71 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Fires and other emergencies don't discriminate like some people do. They don't allow a rookie to ease into their career or a veteran to ease out. They don't cut breaks if you got beat up on calls last shift or if you aren't at 100% coming in. They don't care who they happen upon or who responds to help. Urban, suburban, or rural, full-time or volunteer. The volume, locations, or types may vary, but the physics and biology are the same, and all emergencies require people, equipment, and training. What individuals and communities might not consider is the availability of the services they may need. All services struggle with staffing, but the farther you get from a city center, the longer the response and the longer the transport to continued care. There are still areas in Ontario that are pushing to get 911 instead of 10-digit access numbers. No one wants to be thinking about emergencies all the time, but it's important to take a moment to realize where you are and what you can call on if you need to. And it's an important reminder that we need to learn to care for ourselves and others and give a little extra love to the first responder paid and volunteered members servicing outlying areas. Here's my chat with Tyler Olmstead. Why don't you kick things off and tell me about your family and where you grew up? I'm just a small town kid. Grew up in Great Bruce over on the Bruce Peninsula. Got one sibling. She's a younger sister who works in healthcare. He's a dietary aid manager and, and facilities manager at a nursing home down in Welland. Typical life. I mean, we weren't exactly the richest people in the world. We were kind of a little bit on the lower end of the mid-class upper poverty line, I guess, due to some unfortunate circumstances and stuff. My mom being forced to medical retirement at 40. And then uh, my dad was pretty much the sole income for the house for majority of the the childhood years but the nice thing was is my parents always made sure that my sister and I played sports we were involved in clubs and and we did extracurriculars outside of school and then we always had a roof over our head and and a lunch to to take to school so I guess to say a normal childhood from my eyes at the time but if I look at it today you know I'm fortunate enough that working in emergency services has gotten me up into I would say like the upper echelon of the middle class I guess I live a little bit more comfortably than I'd say my parents were kind of scraping along for money and stuff like that. Whereas I can take that extra cash that I have and put it away and, and do things. And it's really opened my eyes and made me appreciate things a little bit more growing up. Went to the Catholic school system growing up in Owen Sound and it was a part of St. Basil's when I first got into school. I mean, it was pretty normal schooling there. I mean, grade three is when I kind of was open my 
uh, my eyes to being bullied a little bit as a, a bit of a chunkier kid, but that passed for about a year. And then I went into the Notre Dame school there, the other Catholic school on the other side of town for my, my four to eight years where it kind of progressed. And I, I didn't really want to be at school. <laughs> it was just there for friends and, and sports and, and just hanging out. And I didn't think that education would be such a big thing. Turns out it was. So uh, especially growing in our professions and, and understanding that education is probably the top priority in, in pretty well any profession, not just emergency services. From there, I mean, I kind of got introduced to firefighting a little bit in EMS in that aspect when they, they make you do that career guidance test in grade sevens and eight. I did the career guidance test and I got my results back from the test saying that I was either destined to be a police officer, a firefighter, or military member. So kind of had that ingrained in my skull from the get-go and it kind of aligned well with being a kid and always kind of living near a fire station and and seeing the guys going to calls and stuff. And, you know, it just made sense to me. So I tried to progress into high school, St. Mary's there in Owen Sound and, and just basically mold my my high school education in that direction to do firefighting or to do EMS or to do policing or something in emergency services. I feel like I did fairly well from considering the cards I was dealt. When I was uh, in grade eight, I was put into an individual education program because I had tremors in my hands from God knows what since gone, but kind of grew out of that and into my my early teen years. And basically, when I went into high school, if you had an IEP, you were considered one of the slower learners and you were put into the disabled learning and, and it just wasn't a fit for me. I figured that out about a week into my grade nine year when I'm getting 98s, 100s on all the exams and the teacher's talking to me like I'm in grade four and I'm just like, well, I'm in the wrong classroom. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it, it was a difficult start to the year. I tried to get replaced into the, the applied stream. So like the, the normal stream, I guess, is what you would say. And, and they basically told me no. So I had to stick it out for the first year in that slower learning stream. And I mean, I aced math, I aced English. It was a pretty easy year for me. I mean, the science was the easiest part. And it was, you know, the basic stuff, you know, learning about photosynthesis and, and this is the human body and, and sex ed and all this other stuff. And basically they were grooming me to be a construction laborer as they coined it. So I wasn't too involved in the process to put me into that. And I think I should have been at the beginning. I mean, kudos to my mom. She fought tooth and nail to try and get me into the regular stream, but Apparently the school knows best and they said that I wasn't fit for that regular stream. So fast forward to grade 10, I was put into that regular stream and I struggled a little bit at the beginning because I didn't have that pre-foundation. So I opted to basically do hybrid courses throughout my first semester. So I took all of my grade nine compulsory courses in grade 10 in my first semester. And then in my second semester, I ended up taking all the grade 10 compulsory courses to catch up. And then from there, I got a, a good opportunity with some, some co-op education through the school and got to do a couple placements with a couple fire departments, including at Bruce Power at the nuclear power plant there, which was a really good experience seeing 
the industrial side of things versus the municipal side of things. And then I uh, was able to do another co-op placement at the Intertownship Fire Department in Old Sound. That was good. I got to see volunteer firefighters in action and, and kind of open my eyes to that and see what those guys do versus the career guys and everything. And, and I did that for the last couple of years of my, my schooling. And then I went off into uh, to college for fire. Nice. Were your family and the school both aware of the bullying? Was that just something you dealt with on your own? How was that perceived? My dad was a little bit aware of it. My mom was aware of it. My dad's main thing was, you don't take no shit, right? You're, you're raised tough. You know, he was a military guy and, and he got out of the military in the 90s. And he said, if you're, if you're being hit, fight back. I think I kind of, I carried that with me a little bit. I was like, I didn't really want to bring the attention on to me that it was an issue and I just kind of swept it under the rug and now knowing what I know about like the mental health stuff and how that affects people long term and everything like that it, it should have been something I should have talked about a little bit more I mean I love that schools promote and say we have a zero tolerance for bullying but I think that's a crap of shit there's a lot of bullying that goes on in schools that they just don't either care about or don't care to deal with that's definitely the truth. It still happens. Yeah, and I get that from the standpoint as well. My fiance works as a teacher, and she sees it, and she tries to do as much as she can, but she's got her hands tied, and only can do so much where it has to be taken care of by the administration side versus the actual teacher side. Was it physical at any point, or was it always just verbal? Yeah, it, it did get physical a few times. Like I said, I went to the Catholic school, and I mean, we were the school that took all the people that were expelled from other schools and stuff, and you'd be going outside like say in grade 10 I think it was I went outside and I was just getting air between classes and I got jumped by six kids just because of how I looked and they were the ones that were causing me the most damage and in my high school years and eventually I started doing things to help and taking different martial arts classes and and learning how to defend myself essentially and then it just took one day where one guy tried to jump me and I ended up sending him to the hospital with a broken nose because it was in the school and and then I guess the bullying kind of stopped a little bit and then the only time I really heard it was in like minor hockey playing against those guys in hockey because they're at hockey now and you can't get in trouble in minor hockey in their eyes and contacts a thing in, in hockey and me being the goaltender their excuse is just oh I was rushing the net I was crashing the net and I'd become a target there but eventually I had a pretty good defensive core and those guys didn't let people near my net so it uh it was good in that aspect uh, it's hard to get to me when you got two guys that are over six foot three and 250 pounds standing in front of you so was it good to have that camaraderie and support social system i guess through sports yeah i think especially in your formative years growing up like if you don't have a, a social support system in place i mean that's part of your development that's a huge part of your development understanding that that's where you're you're making your friendships and that's where you're you're learning different social skills and and having the camaraderie and and, and knowing that someone's got your back is huge i mean i think that kind of formulated my interest in the fire service and emergency services in general because i saw those guys were always laughing having a good time they're having fun as it progressed through my educational years you know knowing that brotherhood was a huge thing in the fire service that really attracted me were you involved with sports at a competitive level like what maybe walk me through your sports history 
I was in two different streams of sports growing up. So you got your winter sports in, in Canada and you've got your summer sports in Canada. During the winter time, I mean, I started hockey a little bit later than a bunch of my buddies did. So I started in Adam and I actually started as a defenseman. Played the first year as a defenseman. I wasn't great. I barely touched the puck all year. I think I had like two assists and we were in a non-contact year and I got the most penalty minutes for contact. <laughs> so it was kind of a blessing and a curse. My coaches thought, oh, this guy's going to be a great defensive defenseman, stay at home, move the puck, get it up to our, our forwards and no one's going to be near the net. Year two of Adam, we had our goaltender, uh, he dropped out. The coach came into the room before a game and he says, does anybody here want to be a goalie? We don't have a goalie. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'll give it a try. So I put my hand up and I said, yeah, I'll be a goalie. And I went out in my first game and I posted a shutout. So <laughs> that uh, that was kind of my, my eye opener into goaltending. My parents thought it was great and, and it sucked at the same time because I don't know if you know anything about goaltenders. They're not exactly the cheapest position to fulfill in, uh, in any hockey team. So when I uh, expressed that I wanted to continue to play goaltending, my uh, coach's son also said the same thing. So we had a little bit of a, uh, an agreement in place that he would play one game, I would play three games. And in the game that I wasn't playing, I would dress out and skate. And, and eventually it worked. And, and the, the Minor Hockey Association, Shalik Minor Hockey, they, uh, they supplied us with the equipment that we needed and everything for goaltenders growing up because they understood goalies are an expensive position to fill. So they helped out quite a bit there. So I got to give a shout out to them. And they kind of propelled me forward. And then into my peewee years, the full-time goaltender at that point, you know, I had the the cool hockey mask that my parents bought me with whatever money they had. And I mean, I didn't have the best gear, but it was better than nothing. And I kind of went to my first hockey school. That was where I went to Brad Tiley's school and Owen Sound. And they had a couple of NHL goaltenders that were there and they, they showed you the ropes. And I really took to those guys like uh, Curtis Sanford, Owen Sound native. He was there and he basically taught me everything that I, I thought I knew, but way better. I think that really formulated my career as a, a goaltender there. So from there, I went on, played in the Young Canada tournament as a goaltender in Godridge, where teams from all across Canada come in to play. And we were lucky enough that we were invited to that tournament and we played and ended up winning the consolation final. So, I mean, it's not the A side, but at the same time, it was cool. We got the B side. And from there, I mean, we went back to Bantam and had a pretty good year there. I think we were undefeated or only had one loss that year. And I posted 11 shutouts that year, which was uh, huge in about my third year as a goaltender. And then from there, it was into my midget years. And when I got into midget, I was lucky enough that I was invited out to skate with a few different junior teams. And, and I went out with the inaugural year, the, uh, the Meaford Knights Junior A team in, in Meaford there, if you're familiar, being Collingwood, you probably know them. I got a phone call one day saying, congratulations, you've been drafted. And I was drafted in the eighth round to the Knights as uh, their second goaltender for their inaugural season. So that was my, my hockey career for the most part. And then getting myself up into aging out a junior and everything and playing over in BC and just kind of a fill-in goalie over there for the junior league. And then I uh, came home and 
I played a little bit of senior A here with Lucknow, and I was a practice goalie for the Shaolin Crushers, but I haven't really pursued it too, too much from that in terms of my summer sports. played ball pretty competitively. I was a fastball player growing up and playing in the OASAs and the Canadians and stuff like that, with Owen Sound being a huge baseball community. We put out some big names, and my cousin Brad Underwood, he was one of the biggest pitchers to ever come out of Owen Sound. He's a big left-handed pitcher. And then one of my coaches, uh, Paul Clonell, he was pretty influential in forming my baseball career, I guess. And uh, he was catcher for all those those years. And yeah, Andy and Q were the, the big power duo that would always go to the States every weekend and get paid the big money to, to play. And they fly them back and they work a regular day job. So kind of made me want to pursue baseball a lot. I mean, my parents both were high caliber baseball players too. My dad won some Canadian championships. He coached some Canadian championships, both on the men's and women's side. My mom played Canadian slow pitch championships and won. So I think it's kind of ingrained in my DNA to be a ball player. <laughs> yeah, I worked my way up, played in uh, men's select teams. Now I just kind of bum around in the, the beer league of baseball. So it's uh, it's been a, a roller coaster career, but it's been a great career. You mentioned your grandfather was a mentor has been a mentor to you so walk me through his impact for those uh that know me know that my grandfather was a no holds bar pretty strict person actually today is the uh 11 year anniversary of his death we looked up to my grandpa both my sister and i pretty pretty heavily when we were growing up i mean you know i was a little kid it was i went to grandma and grandpa's because he had the big riding lawnmower and the giant two acre lawn and i got to drive the riding lawnmower around the house and and, and play but he always had one rule. He's like, don't put the damn deck down. That man kept his lawn like a golf green. <laughs> and he'd be damned if I got out there and drove around when it was wet and put the deck down and caused divots and everything. But yeah, no, my grandfather was, like I said, he was very strict, but he was very, very tolerant of everything. And he definitely showed me who I should be as a man. I looked up to him specifically, like, because he had those leader traits and he was very, like protective of his family and everything and that I think stems back from his career as an OPP officer for 30 years and that was a big thing I always loved hearing the stories and stuff of him going on different calls and everything and different cases that he's worked like he got a double murder with no bodies convicted and that apparently is huge as a police officer you can't get a a murder conviction with a body sometimes and he got a double murder with no bodies (laughs) so He's, uh, from what his colleagues have told me over the years is he was a hell of an investigator and he always had his due diligence and, and due process done. The one thing he always said to me when I first started expressing my, my interest in emergency services is I said to him, you know, Grandpa, I want to kind of be like you and get into emergency services. And he says uh, verbatim, he said, well, that's, that's wonderful. It's great, but you got to promise me one thing. And I said, uh, yeah, sure, what's that? He's like, don't be a fucking cop. I was like, oh, why is that? He's like, nobody likes you. You get writer's cramp and everyone with or without a degree is a fucking lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, yeah, you make some good points there. So he definitely steered me in the direction of fire and EMS right off the hop without even looking at policing. So (laughs) I think that uh, was huge. He was always there. Anytime I I needed some guidance, if I had a question or anything, he had an answer for it. So, but one precursor we always had to make sure was uh, ticked off was uh, 
It had to be at his table in his rec room with an iced down glass and a fresh Coors Light and a Stogie cigar for him to answer any questions. And I had to get all of it. Usually there's some cards that were played as well. My dad, my uncle, you know, my great uncle would be there. They'd all be playing cards and I'd basically be their waiter for the night, but he'd answer any questions as long as he had those things. So chronologically, was it fire, volunteer, or auxiliary that sort of came before? Like which came first chronologically, volunteering with fire or getting into EMS? Yeah. It came first with the fire stuff. Like I said, I did the co-ops in high school and everything. And then I worked my way into summer auxiliary placement up in Tobamori, Station 10 there, North Bruce Peninsula. And I was working construction for one of the fire captains up there. And, and I just took it as an opportunity to, to learn about the trade as much as I can. Having done my co-ops and stuff, it, it just seemed like a good fit. They needed guys bad. They only had, I think, like six or seven guys that were rostered. So they did this summer auxiliary thing. Anyone who either worked in the area or was a cottager in the area, had some experience or something, or just wanted to help out, was able to join the fire department. And that was a great opportunity. I ran some good calls there with the grotto out in in the park with all the water around. I got some good training. We got to train with the Coast Guard. Anytime a call came in, work pretty much stopped for the day. So it was uh, myself, Tom, and his brother, Tyler. We were all on the fire department. So if a call came in, it was McAfee, Tier 3, responding. (laughs) So we, we kept a radio and a jump bag in the truck and... If there was a medical call, we'd go straight to the call, or if it was a fire, we'd be at the, at the station in no time. So, yeah, it, it was good. That aspect, got to be on a volunteer fire department for the first time, and and then I kind of worked my way into the schooling aspect of things, and that was the year before I went to fire college. So it uh, really solidified my choice to go into fire college. I did that at the, uh, the Ontario Fire Academy in Orangeville there. I met a lot of great mentors there as well, you know, Johnny O'Blennis. Another Brampton guy, great auto X tech, great teacher. A lot of good career advice from him. A couple of the other guys that were, were working there, I mean, Big Steve, he, <laughs> that guy knew more about pumps and medical than I thought anybody knew in the entire world. A couple of good Toronto guys, Tim and, and Scotty, they were they were great for, for teaching us the full aspects. I mean, it was funny when I talked with, uh, with Scott, who was one of the Toronto guys. He uh, worked on Tower 333 downtown, one of the biggest trucks in the city. And he looked us all dead in the eyes. He's like, I'm scared of heights. <laughs> I don't like it. But if the tones go off, it doesn't bother me. And I was like, well, okay. If he can get over his fears of stuff, I mean, I, if I encounter anything, I guess I'll, I'll try and get over that. And I think that's uh, stuck with me throughout my career. But back on my, my timeline, I uh, went to fire college in 2014 went in with the industrial side of things within about eight or nine months after graduating college and uh, worked as a oil field firefighter for a few years out bc and alberta as much as it's it sounds cool and it's like oh you're an oil field firefighter you're industrial firefighter it's a sexy name but it's actually kind of boring (laughs) it's uh, a lot of hurry up and wait it's a lot of sit and find things to do and i don't know if anyone who's listed really knows about the the safety procedures and and policies that are in place for the oil field but it's one of the safest places in the entire world to work in because everybody's got to have a safety risk hazard done an fla done and a pre-job inspection done before they do anything and emergencies are few and far between but when they do come shit hits the fan 
while I was out there, the biggest emergency that we had was, besides the well blowouts, was when the Fort Mac fires happened and the BC wildfires happened. We were called to, to deal with those as well because they needed all hands on deck. So it was an eye-opening experience. And <laughs> I say I get uh, PTSD from campfires now because now all the time when I'm sitting around a campfire having a beer, all I smell is Fort McMurray in Alberta and, and, and Fort St. John, BC. <laughs> so it, it's kind of... Uh, a little humor, but those were huge. We spent probably a week just fighting campfires. Another thing that happened while we were there is they needed more hands on deck, and I was being sent on my days off. So me and a group of like-minded firefighters all went and commandeered a fire truck from energetic rentals that they had sitting in their yard, and we scoped out. We went and pulled our money together. We insured it for a couple of days and went and got various pieces of equipment from different fire stations throughout the district, made our own makeshift fire team and responded back to the call. Really brought you together with some of the, the local guys that were on that truck because I it all stemmed from a Facebook post. I just put out there, I said, uh, hey, I just came off this fire. They still need guys badly. If anyone's interested, I've got an idea. Ten guys right away without questions asked were like, I'm in. It was interesting. And then I guess that's uh, what kind of brought me into the, the fire service. And um, while I was in the fire service as a volunteer and as working in the industrial side of things, I mean, finding that the majority of our calls were medical calls is uh, something that sort of led me towards the, the EMS side of things, I guess. There was one point when I was working with HSE uh, integrated out in Fort St. John, the boss of our station came and said, I want every firefighter to be cross-trained to a medic. So with that, he said, we're going to put you through courses and you guys are going to all be fire medics. So we're like, oh, okay. And some guys scoffed at it. They're like, oh, I don't want to be a fire medic. And I'm like, well, me, free training. That's great. I'll take it. I love free training. <laughs> I love training in general, but I love free training. So they sent us on our uh, BCMR course for a couple weeks and we did it through Mountain View in Dawson Creek. Was able to do the whole course there, did my BC licensing for it and I just took a liking to EMS and I uh, pursued to get more and more certifications and, and eventually when I decided to move home after being laid off for I think the third or fourth time in the spring, because every spring they lay off all the all the workers in the oil field so that everything can thaw and dry and tree planters can go in and, and replant and everything. I was just getting kind of bored and I said, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna pursue EMS and see if that's a thing I could do. And I took all my courses and upgrading that I did here and I went back to Ontario and you know as yourself as a, a former medic. The ministry has some strict guidelines as to what they consider a paramedic and what they don't. And I went with all my stuff and I said, I'd like an EMCA, please. And they said, nope, that's not going to happen. You need to do this, 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 and this. And I looked at the course load that they gave me and I said, well, I might as well just take another program and go back to college. So I enrolled in uh, CTS and I did the uh, the one-year program there and it was it was hectic, but it was good to have that background going in there. I feel like that course was a, a heavy course load and I called it shotgun learning. They shot you and you took in the spread as what you can and then you teach yourself the rest. So there's a lot of YouTube paramedics out there and I'm, I'm guilty. I'm one of them. Sometimes those YouTube paramedics are sometimes your best paramedics. Guys that are getting 
80s and 90s and in the books and they're still doing 95 percent with their with their hands it's a good trade-off i guess i went through my schooling there and had a good time i was lucky enough there was a, a few guys from my hometown that were there so i got to do the schooling with them and they made it really enjoyable even though it was miserable at the same time and from there I did my placement in uh, Bruce County in Kincardine with another couple of big mentors there. I was with uh, Jeremy Costell and, and Dan McCracken. They were my preceptors and those guys were great. They taught me more in three months on the road than I learned in that year at CTS. And I've taken that with me throughout my entire career. Now is what am I, five years in as a, as a paramedic in the province. So it was really informative learning their style of approach was in the morning on a day shift it was go and research something and find out everything that you can about that subject for instance cardiology and learn everything that you know about cardiology and then prepare a presentation and present it to us in the afternoon and teach us like we don't know anything about cardiology and make us experts in it by the end of the day And I thought that was great. That was huge. I learned more by doing that than I did by sitting in a lecture and taking notes. Research learning, and I'm a big proponent of research learning and self-teaching. So I highly suggest that to anyone that struggles in a classroom like I was in, in that time period. What was the attitude in school and during that time with them around FIRE, them knowing that you were connected with that and did they know that you also wanted to do fire as well yeah much like a few of the other schools that i've heard in my class specifically there was about eight or nine of us that had some sort of connection to fire we were not well liked by a lot of the staff and faculty that were in there that were only paramedics and they were diehard paramedics they basically told us from the get-go it was you're here to pad your resume. We don't care for that. You're here to be a paramedic and a paramedic only. We don't want you sitting here talking about how fire does it. Well, this is how we do it in paramedicine. We don't care what fire did. We don't care if you call fire. We are paramedics. We're here to do paramedic things. We are higher than fire. Paramedics are God in their own terms. And It was so bad to a point like if you got caught wearing like your volunteer department's shirt in the hallways when you're not in class, they would reprimand you and they would berate you be like, how could you wear a fire shirt in a paramedic school? Be proud of being a paramedic and blah, 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 blah. And and it was unfortunate because at the same time, in, in the same breath, they're saying, you're not a paramedic until you have your AMCA. You can't call yourself a paramedic and blah, 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 blah. But you're kind of caught in this limbo. And then you get the people that are fresh out of high school that have no life experience or they're coming into this as a second career from something else completely irrelevant to emergency services and unrelated to the fact and now they have this disdain for firefighters this predetermined ingrained disdain in their dna as a paramedic saying that firefighters are useless and and firefighters have no business being on a medical call well me coming from a volunteer side i've seen it where we're great help on a call out in the middle of the night at minus 30 and there's a foot of snow in the driveway and well good luck getting your stretcher through there by yourself 
who are you calling? You're calling fire. We're coming and carrying the patient out. We're, we're coming and we're shoveling the driveway. We're carrying your bags. You know, God forbid it's a CTAS-1 and there's CPR in progress. We're jumping in the back and doing CPR for you. So you can have those skilled hands free to do paramedic procedures, the delegated acts that are set out by the base hospital and stuff. So I feel like the, the paramedic schools have given fire a bad rap. And what they should be doing is not so much hating on the firefighters themselves, but look at where the hate is coming from and where it's the unions and the management and stuff that are trying to take on these workloads. But if you go and talk to a guy on the floor, the guy on the floor would rather not do 14 medical calls in a shift. He would rather training than do 14 medical calls. He would rather go to a car accident. He would rather go to a structure fire that's ripping that's two alarm or three alarm and actually put water on fire and do a search. You know, go to a tech rescue call. That's the stuff that firefighters love. That's the stuff that I love. When my pager goes off for a volunteer call, yeah, sure, it sucks. It's someone's worst day, but I know I get to go do something cool. And I get to go and use the skills that I've learned over the years to hopefully help that person. And I feel like while in paramedic school, it was kind of frowned upon to use those extra skills. And it resonated with a lot of the people, like even going on to their rideouts and, and seeing people in passing and touching up with people, you know, in the midterms and, and talking to them, oh, how are your rideouts going? Oh, it's great. You know, we did this, we did that, we did this, we did that. And, oh, these fire guys came and we just told them to get lost. Okay, but it sounds like the call you're describing to me is something where they could have been a benefit to you. No, 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 no. We'll, we'll get rid of them. But that's the thing that's being ingrained in these students, unfortunately. And and like myself, I, I help out a little bit at the college in, in Sudbury from time to time as a, kind of a drop-in instructor. And I try and do my best to change that rhetoric a little bit and help mold the future of paramedics coming through and show them the importance of utilizing all resources and not just some resources. I think it goes a long way and hopefully my word kind of sticks with them a little bit as they go through their careers. Do you feel it really just stems from, and maybe this always isn't explained to students, but if EMS was given the resources, the money, the staffing, the apparatus, the equipment that they need in the number of stations and the locations that were required, that fire generally wouldn't be needed, right? Obviously, we'd still be working together on joint calls like MVCs, or I'd like to get in eventually to talking to you about tech rescue calls and the need for firefighters trained at a higher medical level because places where medics can't go. But instead of that being the case, obviously we have all these fire stations already in place. You have guys and girls that are EMR trained. It's a stop the clock. I mean, no pun intended. It's sort of a band-aid solution, right? That EMS could be run as a standalone entity on its, if it was given the proper support and funding. And yet they bring us in as a, an adjunct or a stopgap. Do you think many medics understand that? Do you think that's explained? Is it talked about? And then it's not really the firefighter's fault that that's the system that's put in place. People are just getting into jobs that they love and doing their work and going and doing what they're told. So a lot of this infighting that comes out on the street level, it's kind of a, a problem that we've all been thrown into, but none of us have caused it. And instead of us all trying to just do our best to get along, it ends up coming out in the, the street level. I feel like with EMS, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head there with a lot of different things. It's we're underfunded, we're understaffed, 
and we don't have the resources available like in comparison to places in the states like if you look at the states there's number of different EMS entities that are down there that run heavy rescue trucks that run highway calls in basically by themselves because they have the tools on the ambulance there's a lot of combo EMS fire agencies that are down in the states do I agree with it in some aspects yes in some aspects no why are you running a full fire engine and an ambulance code to a fall at four o'clock in the morning when it can easily be handled by two paramedics on a code three and non-urgent lights and sirens kind of deal whereas in ontario since our unions are always button heads the iaff versus qp and opsu i feel like it, it just stems down the line you know they say shit rolls downhill and eventually what's happening up here is getting down to the street level guys and the street level guys such as myself and and yourself and and anyone else that's been on a truck they're feeding off of that and they're kind of just repeating what they're hearing from the top almost the same as politics somebody says something up here their political leader says this and then they don't understand it there's no context to it but they're they're spewing off the exact same thing that they just said with the with the hope of no rhetoric and it's if the money and and the 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 awareness was there i mean we're slowly getting the awareness through the pandemic and stuff that ems is one of the more i wouldn't say hated professions but it's the more red-headed stepchild profession of emergency services you've got fire on your pedestal you've got police up here on their pedestal but ems is down here catching the shit and and it's been that way for for years and i mean if you look at the history of the two top dogs with police and, and fire you know they've been around since the 1800s whereas ems in its current model today is fairly new only since about the 80s it's been what it is today going back to the 60s and 70s it used to be the funeral home ran the ambulance and the funeral home sent two guys and they threw your body in the back of the car and they took you to to the hospital and then they stood around and waited for you to die so they could take you back to the funeral and that's different than what we are now we're a rolling emergency room and the skills and and delegated acts that we have are super high compared to the 90s even even the early 2000s it, it used to be paramedics had to patch for narcan now every joe blow and brother and sister carries narcan in their in their car and it's slowly developing like it's if we had more resources on the road and we were more self-sufficient to be able to stand alone i feel like there would be less infighting but at the same time there's different things that fire brings to the table that i think a lot of ems providers are just not aware of for instance uh, through taking johnny oblanis's courses with rs rescue and doing the auto x stuff all the way up to the technician level I know more about scene safety at an MVC and things to look for and be able to actually be a resource to the fire guys inside the car as a paramedic than someone who didn't take those courses because they don't know the interior ops. They don't know to look for the firewire glass glass and, and any of the other things that may hurt them. And they lack no fault of their own, the intelligence to operate on those scenes. And I think that's where things kind of stem. You're on these scenes, fire guys are seeing something that you don't see because they've got the training, the years of experience and the background knowledge. Whereas I've worked with paramedics that are young, that have come out of school, right out of high school, and they get on scene to an MVC and they don't realize that 
when that car hit a pole, that those wires that are coming off the top are hydro wires, and those wires that are coming off the bottom are telecommunication wires, but all of those wires are on that car right now, and if you go any closer to that car, you're dead. And I feel like a lot of places aren't, aren't getting that. In terms of having that extra training brought into the schools, it's something I suggested when I was in CTS. I said, why don't we bring in an auto extrication class and have the fire guys do a demonstration and show us exactly what they want from us on a scene. And they shot it down right away. And they said, it's no benefit to us. Well, I highly object to that. It's definitely a benefit to us to know those sort of things or understanding carbon monoxide calls. Sure, we know how carbon monoxide affects the body, but can any paramedic who is fresh into it that isn't really well-versed in like hazmat or anything like that tell me how many parts per million it takes to put a person unconscious or how many parts per million it takes to kill a person or how many parts per million for a certain amount of time you can work in. These are different things that that are just kind of swept under the rug and, and not really trained on. And we're getting to these calls. Yeah, sure, we carry the CO monitors on our on our uh, cardiac monitors now, but does anyone actually know how to use them? They're expecting them to go off. Like, do you know how to do your, your proper checks and calibrations of those monitors? Or if you're getting called to a CO call, is fire already on the way? Is fire already there? These are different things that you need to worry about. And if you get on scene and you see someone down in the middle of a house and you see it through the window, you know what they say in tech rescue, compassion kills. You're going to go in through that door. You're going to beat that door down because you can see them. And you're going to go into that CO infested environment. And you're going to go down too. And you're just going to become that, that canary that keeps going down and going down. So I feel like fire has a very important role in a lot of the calls that we run on. And I feel like we have a very important role on a lot of calls that fire runs on. You mentioned the different models, but having seen a, a few of them and, being at West, you mentioned about the fire medic model. What's your take on different configurations? And then maybe give me your take on, say, like I mentioned before, about tech rescue medics, right? So bottom of a trench, these long drawn out calls, the medics can't go down into the hole until it's safe or if, if at all. Is that a place where that crossover, where these high risk, lower volume calls aren't necessarily thought of? and some resources put in place ahead of time. Confined space is another one, and obviously high level. If you're doing a crane rescue, you've got a, an operator up high, you've got the TR team up there. These calls are medical calls because they all involve people. We don't cut empty cars apart. There's always patients involved, yet it's not always safe for the medics to be in these spaces. So is that the place where cross-trained firefighters actually have the best impact? Yeah, it, it definitely has its place. I'm a big proponent. If you're working on a fire truck and you're trained to be a PCP or an ACP, you should be able to work as your skill. If you look at out east in, in Nova Scotia and stuff, they have their college of paramedics out there. And it doesn't matter if you're an advanced care paramedic and you're on a volunteer fire department. You run a call out there and the ambulance shows up and you're an ACP, you can jump into that truck and intubate that patient and give drugs and, and run that call as a firefighter with that level of care and touching into the tech rescue stuff. I think it's a, it's a great resource to have paramedic level firefighters in these calls when you have paramedics that can't get down in there. Like you said, it's not safe for them to be there because the fire guys, we have that training. We have that situational awareness. We know to do our scene survey and, and understand the different risks that are associated with the different tasks that we're doing. High angle rescue, for instance, you're doing a crane rescue, you're hundreds of feet in the air. 
you're you're not going to have a paramedic go up there now mind you there are different services in the province that are starting to amalgamate services amongst each other i know with gray county with owen sound fire i believe chatsworth gray highlands and inner township they're actually forming their own tech rescue team with the gray county paramedic services and i see them talk about it on their social media platforms and everything and i think that's great that's one check mark off of 20 different check marks that could be hit though you say like trench rescue if you're going in and doing a trench rescue that's a different skill set than a high angle rescue but with these tech rescue teams that the fire department supplies it would be more beneficial for them to be skilled in all of those trades because they're running those calls and they can practice those calls more because EMS is always busy. EMS is consistently on offload delay. We're consistently on calls. We're consistently doing non-urgent stuff. And the pandemic showed that. We're strapped for resources. You even look today, Durham region, Toronto, York kind of, Hamilton for sure. They're always in code red. There's no ambulances available in these huge urban metropolitans. And if you go into those cities and you have a medical emergency, you're expecting as soon as you call 911, an ambulance is there in five minutes. But majority of the time, it's 15, it's 20, sometimes 30. But the guys that are getting there first are fired. And it's becoming more and more prevalent that they're always getting there first. It used to be 50% before the, the influx of calls. It was, you know, okay, sometimes EMS is getting there first. Okay, sometimes fire is getting there first. Now it's... Typically, unless you're in a volunteer service out in rural Ontario, fire's beating you there 90% of the time. And, and having those guys to stop the clock, per se, yeah, I get it. A lot of patients need rapid transport, and that's what they need. But if you've got a patient that can benefit from cardiac drugs, a patient that could benefit from dextrose and be titrated back up to their regular level of consciousness before the ambulance even gets there, and they do the full protocol and they can sign them off before they even get there. That frees up another ambulance resource. I see it as a benefit. I know a lot of union guys that are going to be listening to this podcast on my side of the table will be like, oh, what's he talking about? We're trying to separate the two. It's like, yeah, I get it. But that, again, is the it's the union rhetoric again. It's They want to be separate entities. They don't want to be part of a team. They just want to be their own thing. And I feel like we need to collaboratively work together to create common ground to get to that common goal and if you don't work together the cogs aren't going to spin the gears aren't going to turn effectively and we're not going to get any output yeah the common goal being the patient right that's what everyone should be focusing on what's best for the patient i think firefighters are keenly aware and appreciative of the level of care that paramedics provide they're always relieved that they're there they're most often i would say happy to see them and willing to work with them and support them. And the one downside I see is that, you know, with other things where no one else is coming to do the job, we take full ownership of it and should be diving in and knowing everything we can about it. Whereas on the medical side of things, it's kind of this adjunct extra thing that we do that guys don't necessarily own because they know that they have to look around the corner and the medic should be showing up any minute. So if anything, I think the, the detriment is that when they know other people are coming with higher levels of training, they don't necessarily engage fully in the level of training that they have for the reason that they're there. It's more of the the hand padding and the old bed oxygen blanket idea still kind of persists in general. 
there are more and more firefighters that are taking ownership of that EMR level of training and learning to do their BLS skills best they can, which you can save a lot of lives with strong BLS skills, right? You've I'm sure you've, you'd agree you'd probably save a lot more lives with a BVM than you would with a hose line through a fire career or so. And then again, these situations where you have the need to have, say, a firefighter in a car accident inside the car first because it's not safe to, for the medics to be in there or these tech rescue situations. So perhaps if we had more of the patient-centric mentality that a lot of this infighting would ease off. If everyone, like I said, was working towards that common goal and in a collaborative way, it, it would see a majority of the infighting stop. I know it's commonly known throughout the States, especially with those combo models of fire EMS that a lot of guys, like you said, they just don't want to put 100% into it. You know, they get assigned to the ambulance and it's like punishment instead of being on the engine or being on the ladder, or being on the rescue. And it's unfortunate that that's the, the outlook a lot of those guys have because you're the first line of defense for these people that are in a life-threatening emergency. If you're looking at it as punishment, your attitude going in isn't going to be high. It's not going to be positive. And then well, I've got friends that work in Texas and I've got friends that work in Pennsylvania and stuff like that. And a lot of the time with those combo departments, it's EMS is kind of kicked to the side. The budget stuff is going towards the fire side of things and being on a couple of different EMS groups in, in the States, you see that those guys and gals that are working down there, they're not paid well. They're run off their butts. They're doing 48-hour shifts. And I mean, 48-hour shift in Ontario would be the end of me. I, I would die if I had to work 48 hours straight on an ambulance in downtown Toronto or an ambulance in, in downtown Mississauga. And you're running in a 12-hour shift, sometimes 9 to 10 call numbers. Well, times that by four. And that'll run the best of a person to the ground. And that's unfortunate. I mean, I've heard a lot of places in, in the province, paramedics saying, oh, fire's got a great schedule, fire's got great wages, why can't we be like fire? We'll fight for it. Come together as a collaborative and, and fight for it. You know, I know there was one service in the province that still runs 24-hour shifts, and there was one other one that was running 24s until they unionized, and they're slowly trying to fight back and get that 24-hour shift back because they're a slower service. Do I expect to see Toronto EMS as a 24? No. But is there some places in Simcoe? Sure. Is there some places in Muskoka? 100%. I work in a hybrid 24-hour station as of right now where I'm working 12 hours on shift with 12 hours on call. I'm still there for 24 hours. It doesn't matter if the call comes in at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to that call. And the unfortunate thing is, is I'm only paid a fraction of my wage to be on call. Whereas I'm doing the same job, but you get a little more freedom. You don't have to be there in your uniform ready to go. But I sacrifice that by having to work five days in a row or seven days in a row and hours and hours away from my house. It's unfortunate, but I feel like if we had the, the seven days a month at 24 hours completely paid, you would see the morale go up. You would see a lot more people want to work EMS. You would see a lot more paramedics going into the school system. And, and learning to become paramedics. And I feel like there would be less infighting and there would be more budget put towards us from the province. And it may be one band-aid fix. Should be definitely a lot of study put into it. There should be some research done on it. But, you know, if you get into places like the bigger urban metropolitans, like Sudbury, any of the Durham region municipalities would be Oshawa, Ajax, Pickering, 
and then Kingston, Ottawa, Toronto, London, all those places that are running those high volumes of calls, well, either A, put more trucks on the road and adopt the 24, or B, just put more trucks on the road and don't adopt the 24, stay a status quo, but put more trucks on the road. The big answer to the end, uh, to all the questions at the end of the day is we need more ambulances on the road. We need more paramedics on the road. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is a lot of paramedics are trying to exfile out of all of EMS together. The stress level's at an all-time high. The mental health is at an all-time low. And the services, yes and no, they're putting things in place, but they're dropping the bucket. The service I work for, full-time employees, you get a thousand bucks for a psychotherapist once a year. That's nothing. That's maybe two, three sessions. When you're not solving the world's problems in two or three sessions. We have just enacted that part-time staff also get that $1,000 put into their, their pocket for, for psychotherapy. And another thing touching on part-time staff, EMS is the only emergency service out of the big three where you have to start part-time. You cannot just start full-time unless you're the Ottawa's or the Toronto's of the world, or in some cases, James Bay. We had a very rare posting come up in my service for an external full-time permanent position. And it was filled, thankfully, internally. But that never happens. That never happens in these small services. You never see full-time positions permanently coming externally. And usually the reason for it is they're placed in the middle of nowhere, or it's a least desirable base, or there's a problem partner, or something. But get rid of the part-time and hire everybody full-time. The big problem with new paramedics is they don't know if they're going to have enough money to eat at the end of their two weeks. When I first got into it, in the wintertime, I had to work two, three jobs because you never knew if you were getting full hours on the ambulance. And I know with police and fire, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to work as much. You don't have to worry about having food and in your belly and a, and a roof over your head because you know you're going to have your shifts. You're full time. And I've been a big proponent of it. I've spoke out against it ever since day one. Get rid of part-time unless you want to be casual part-time and hire everybody full-time. That's going to boost morale. That's a way to get more trucks on the road. And that's a way to alleviate a lot of problems within the current system. What are some of the big hit items that firefighters can focus on to be the best support for patients to interact with the medics, to hand over how can they help make the process for the community member a little more seamless? I think the easiest way to be the best firefighter on scene for me is to be a master at your BLS, be clear and concise in your patient history gathering, and give me a really good report when I walk up on scene. I know a guy's level of care the minute he starts talking to me when I get on scene and fires there first. And the guy's talking to me and says, yeah, his, uh, his stats 94 and yeah, we did a blood pressure on him. It's, I think it's normal versus I've got a 76 year old male complaining of chest pain that's been going on for four hours. These are his vital signs based on this. We have one guy currently at bedside who's assisted giving aspirin. If I'm hearing that, my confidence level in these guys has gone up substantially versus I think his vitals are this. You don't really instill a lot of confidence in the paramedics walking in. And if I hear the detailed report coming from you guys, it helps me do my job a lot more seamlessly. 
it makes it easier on me because you've done half my job already. You've gotten the detailed patient assessment. You've gotten my medication list. You've gotten my allergies. You've gotten the AVPU scale and the OPQRST down. I know exactly when this chest pain started and where it is and, and what makes it better or worse before I walk in the door. Sure, I'm still going to take that report. I'm going to do my assessment and basically do everything over again. And no discredit to that firefighter. And I find that a lot of firefighters hear what they're saying is, is a, a good report, and I agree. But then the minute that they see me go in and do everything over again, it's almost like they get offended. It's like, was my report not good enough for you? They have to remember that we have to do our job too, and, and, and taking that great report from them is part of our job. And yeah, if they can just be good at those, those two things, it's history gathering and giving report and providing that BLS, that goes a long way. That's miles in my book. And maybe that understanding that we're trending the patient, I think that's one thing that firefighters don't understand is that through the entire time with that person through the chain of the healthcare system, it's it's trending the patient, right? How were they when you got them? What did you do? Now where are we at 10, 15 minutes from now? Again, there's more information and treatment and vitals taken a number of times with the medics all the way through hand over to the, to the hospital and then from the nurses and it doesn't end until that person's discharged. So maybe firefighters need to see themselves more of that really integral, important piece of that long chain of people that are giving treatment. And then perhaps secondly, stop focusing on what they're not, right? I think a lot of people get hung up mentally handcuffing themselves by saying things, well, I'm not a primary care paramedic, right? And then, but the primary care medic can say, well, I'm not an ACP. And the ACP can say they're not a CCP. And the CCP can say they're not a doctor. And the doctor can say they're not a specialist. It's like, well, that what does no one do anything along the way? Why don't you focus on being really good at what you actually are? Stop worrying about what you're not and see how you can support that process. Like even just using that skill set that you have, whether it be your EMR or your CPR certified with the volunteer department or you're a PCP and you're working for a service and then you're on a volunteer department and you show up on a call. I try to do my best as a volunteer when I show up on a call and if we get there first, majority of the time if we're getting activated is because the ambulance is delayed. And if I get on scene, I try and do my assessment as I would if I was at work. And then that way, when those paramedics walk in, I can say, this is Jane. She's been having chest pain for four to six hours. She's taken her aspirin. She's taken a total of 161. She's taken or 162. And she's taken two shots of her nitro before you guys got here. We told her to stop taking nitro at the risk of a possible RBI. She says it hurts here, moves to here, and tingles down here. Nothing makes it better or worse. It's constant five on 10. So then that way, the paramedics, when they're walking in and they're hearing this, they have, a, like you said, they have a trend. They know 10 minutes ago, this is where Jane was. In 15 minutes, if she says, my pain's gone from a 5 on 10 to an 8 on 10, but they're not showing a STEMI on that 12 lead, well, maybe by the time they get to the hospital and they do the repeat 12 lead, they'll see a STEMI or, or something along those lines. Yeah, I think it could go a long way for firefighters, too, to realize that Again, they can focus on the fact that most, quote unquote, most of the medical calls we go on aren't emergencies, right? That's that's thrown out there very, very commonly. And it solidifies this idea in their mind that they're not really needed, that they'd rather not run the medical calls. I mean, there's a couple parts to this. First part would be, you've said you want to help people. Do you only want to help people in the way you want to help people, how it's good for you? Don't You don't actually want to help people in the way they need to be helped. Yeah, you want to be the hero 
or do you want to actually help people? Yeah, in, in your definition, in, in your time, in your way, and not necessarily in what actually people need. And secondly, I mean, I think maybe firefighters tend to forget that most of the high-rise calls they go to aren't actually apartment fires. Most of the residential alarms you're going to go to aren't actual fires. The majority of calls that emergency services are going to go to aren't necessarily at what we would say is the high-end emergency. Yet we still go and we train and we go through the motions and we do our job. A lot of the medical calls you go to are going to be exactly the same. But that idea, again, I've quoted it many times from Aaron Fields about mediocrity wins most of the time. If you want to be with your hands in your pockets on medical calls, when you walk in a house, it's expecting that call to be next to nothing as it usually is. And then it's not. There's a lot of things you should be doing in the first five minutes that can save the person's life that you're not going to do. And then you just think you're going to push that responsibility off on the medics when that's it was on you in that moment. So perhaps some more ownership from the firefighter level to A, actually engage in helping people and B, know what to do when it's really needed. 100%. And like I've had it where dispatch doesn't always get it right. You're getting dispatched out to a lift assist and, and you get on scene and it turns out it's an orange call because the patient's in full stroke and you're two and a half hours away. And those calls happen. They say it in college all the time. The caller and the patient never read the textbook. So you don't know what you're getting there based on the dispatch, usually 100% of the time. I went to a call with my partner. We were called for a code three, urgent get there, no lights, no sirens for a dehydration. And we get there and he's CTAS one. He's resuscitative he was a co poisoning that was also hypothermic and the co had caused an mi and it's a 28 year old you don't expect that and now you're you're in go mode you you go from a oh nonchalant you know i'll start an iv and this guy give him some fluids he probably was out partying the night before to a holy shit this guy's gonna die you got to prepare yourself for those calls like you say mediocrity always wins and it's like nothing's ever held true it, you you discount those calls until you're there. Yeah, it's worth hammering home to new medics and new firefighters, right? If we can reach them at, at all, you should be using these basic calls to rep out your skills, right? You, if you're taking vitals on every single call you go on, then A, not only are you just doing those second nature so you can focus on a lot of other things going on in the scene as opposed to trying to get the BP cuff to work. Things like listening to lung sounds, you can get, you really get to know what normal lung sounds sound like, and you'll get to know what abnormal lung sounds sound like. You can actually, now that we're doing some symptom relief and symptom assist, you can actually help do something with that, with Ventolin. Even so, maybe you're not going to fix the emphysemic or the CHF patient in that moment by listening to their lung sounds, but at least you can hand over a, a really good report and get the ball rolling for the medics as they go in. Or know when you should be bagging them. I think bagging conscious, bagging conscious to semi-conscious patients is a real art that uh, a lot of people don't grasp. Or even when you get into the pediatrics and their heart rates are low and they're not perfusing well and you need to start CPR on somebody that's still alive. Understanding those situations and when those skills need to be applied is huge. And, and like you said, just do the skills. Do the skills on every call, no matter how low priority it is or how high priority it is. You need to do those skills because it just makes you better. It becomes second nature. It's muscle memory. And you don't think about doing it when shit hit the fan. You get into a, a situation, you know, you've got a pretty bad overdose where the patient needs to be bagged. They need Narcan and they, they need a set of vitals. And you guys get in there. 
it's first nature. You got four guys. One guy knows, you know, you make your game plan in the truck. Captain's going to be the note taker. The two firefighters in the back, one's going to be on airway, one's going to be on vitals, and then the driver's going to hit narking. And having that structured plan before you guys even get in the door is huge. And it makes a call go substantially better. The outcomes are better. And when we get there, yeah, they might be nodding off again. Then I start an IV and, and titrate some, some Narcan to get them breathing again. But at least you guys did the initial life-saving maneuvers and maintain that patient for us to get there to take them to the hospital and, and continue that care. And like you said, we start the trending. We're, we're doing the triage stuff and, and working our way up to where that patient needs to be for a positive end goal of discharge from the hospital and perfect health or better health than what they were. And also the awareness that even if EMS is coming, if you're in a situation where you need two or three ambulances and you only have one, or even getting off the truck just as two firefighters, right? I mean, MVCs to me always stand out. We're going to split the difference and you take a car, I take a car, or maybe there's three cars, maybe there's four cars. That's a lot of patients and that's two firefighters until the next truck comes and you get EMS on the way too, that you're going to be on your own for quite a while with limited resources yourself. So there's a really prime example, I think, of times when A, firefighters need to be on point with their BLS skills, and B, that's where fire and EMS really do need each other because those accidents, car accidents in particular, have high potential very often to be multiple casualty incidences beyond us even talking about multiple casual incidences where we're all going to be having our own patients. So it's one thing to always have that comfort in the back of your mind, like, oh, I'll just look over my shoulder and medics will be here in a minute, so I really won't really have to do anything. But it is your job to help in these high-priority situations, so you better have your shit together. Absolutely. And knowing how to triage a patient. And again, I go back to that compassion kills. Don't get it fixated on that one person who's dead on impact and worry about the people that are in the backseat that are still alive. Don't start your CPR on this person. But like that's happened. You know, I've come on a on a call and it's a it's an MVC car versus transport with a family in the car. Dad's driving, dad's dead. And the volunteers were on scene and they were doing CPR on dad when you've got two kids that are unconscious in the back. Well, I don't care about dad anymore, as as grim as that is to say, heartless. And for anyone that's listening to this podcast and who's not in emergency services, they have to know that we make these decisions on the fly, who's the most futile and who's the most vile and you're always going to take the most vile versus the most futile if you have the resources available yeah take them but in that aspect if i'm one ambulance and i have three patients that are still viable unfortunately he's going to stay and he's going to perish and if firefighters were to understand the mci practices in that way especially down on the volunteer level and even all the way up to the career level like there's probably some guys that don't even know what MCI stood for until they got to academy. And if they were to have that skill set and that good BLS, they can make those conscious decisions to speed the process along for these other patients that need the beneficial care and need to be priority one versus the guy who's dead in the front seat. Yeah, perhaps that realization, it's twofold. A, it, you get that blood drain from your head moment, like, oh my God, I'll actually be put in this situation and on point, so I better know my stuff because I don't want to not know it. And B, we realize how much we're going to need each other, how busy we're going to be, we can focus on the work. And very often when we're focusing on work, we're not worried about the the bullshit politics that are happening in the background. All that kind of falls away. 
nobody's an enemy when you've got a serious call out in your hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you have a lot of interaction post-call with Fire and EMS interacting, getting back together, discussing things? Uh, have you seen that happen over services you've been involved in, or is there very much their world, our world, or have you seen the two come together? It depends. So in the community I work in up north, it's a very, very small community of less than like 200 people. And we know all the fire guys, we go to their practices and train with them so that they understand our equipment and how to use our stuff. So if we call for them, they know where things are on the truck and how to use it. Any of the bad calls that we've done up there, typically I've got the fire chief's number in my phone. I say, hey, guys just got back from a bad call. Do you want a debrief? Sometimes he's, uh, yeah, sure, why not? And sometimes it's like, well, you know, it's 4 a.m., you know, guys got to go to work. And it's like, I get it. But at the same time, how many of those guys are going to go home after that call and go back to sleep? Those guys could probably use someone to talk to because they're not seeing it at a frequency that myself and my partner would be. Or at least within the 24 to 72 hour window. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then in my volunteer setting, it's nice. We have a chaplain on our station. So uh, we did a, a water uh, rescue call, a nice rescue call back uh, a couple months ago. And unfortunately, patient was BSA and we didn't get them back. The debrief was set up when we got back to the station right away. And he was there. Our chief was there. Our deputy chief was running the call. And, and I had to leave because I had to go to work and drive my six hours to work. I got back, we did a quick debrief. What'd you do? How do you feel about it? Are you good? Do you need counseling? Whatever. And you know, I was good about it. I did a majority of the patient care on that call, being down at the water side on the shore team and after we got her out of the water. I mean, I was directly involved in that call doing CPR and airway management and stuff. And fortunately, but unfortunately, I've seen that before multiple times, more than a lot of the guys on my volunteer department would with my profession. So got my predetermined ways of coping if anything is bad. And I knew that if I needed to talk to someone, I can't. And I, I really like the fact that we have that sort of peer support debriefing sessions that do happen with our chaplain anytime there's a big call. How are you in general managing the physical and mental impacts of the job so far? Well, I can tell you one thing for sure. After having kids, kids calls suck now. <laughs> Having a kid has changed my outlook on a lot of different kid calls. My kid was five days old. I went to work. We had a SIDS call. And like when I got home, I just stared at him while he was sleeping. And I didn't look away from him for a couple hours. Just make sure he was breathing. And it is an occupational stress. But at the same time, you know, you talk to people. I talked to my peer support about that. And they referred me into talking to the psychologist that we have on staff and the psychologist said that was a completely normal thing for you to do because it was a traumatic event you relate to it at home and you're gonna try and make sure that that event doesn't happen and you were having a normal human reaction to an abnormal situation but in terms of all the other stuff i mean i'm not really phased by the blood and guts and anything it's like the emotional stuff it, it, you always have to remind yourself it's not your emergency you're just there to mitigate and sometimes you can't do what needs to be done to mitigate things. For instance, PCP going to a choking where a set of McGill's would come in real handy. But because I'm not an ACP and there's no ACPs around, well, that person's going to have that obstruction in their throat until I can get it out with manual compression or 
push it down into their lungs with a BVF. It's stuff like that. Just have to remind myself and my partner does the same thing. We, we gut check each other. You good? Yeah, you're good. Awesome. If you're not good, tell me. Because if you go and do something stupid, I'm going to be mad at you. And I'm going to shit talk you at your funeral. <laughs> so we've got that kind of thing uh, between my partner and I. We've got a really good relationship there. And we work really well together. Our peer support at work is, is great. Usually within an hour of the call being done, if uh, the soups know about it, the soups calling us and then asking us if we need time to get our truck back in service, ask if we need time just to debrief amongst ourselves and if we want peer support to call us. And usually even if you say no, they still call you anyway. So it's kind of good in that aspect. And yeah, just talking about it makes makes a world of difference because you, you can't keep it bottled up. We as first responders, you can speak to it too. You take that little thing, you compartmentalize it, you store it away. You don't think about it again. Same thing. Another traumatic situation. You take it, put it in a box, store it away. Don't think about it again. It happens. Until the storage unit gets too full and you can't close the door anymore. Exactly. And then you got to buy a new storage unit. (laughs) Yeah, it stands out for me when you're mentioning about kids. And I, I remember distinctly, it was a safe feeling to... Not to, not to add this to the. I'm sure you'll have the same thought. I'm. I don't. I'm now. I'm reluctant to like add another thought to your brain. Something to think about. But it w- it was comforting to me to, with one child to have her in the car seat in the middle of the back seat of the vehicle. And it was a real stress for me to consider when we were having two that I would have to put the car seats on the doors. That was it. I remember that being a distinct job-related awareness that impacted how I behaved in my personal life. I'm the same way. My fiance Sarah, like, bless her heart, she's the greatest mother I've ever seen in the short three and a half, almost four months that we've had a child. But there's certain arguments and hills that I'll die on. And one of those is put them in the center. And her argument is, I can't reach the center. Neither can the car that's hitting us. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's the same thing. It's like, well, I'd rather him be in the middle and you can't reach him and you have to climb in and do it than the car that's hitting from the passenger side or the car that's hitting from the driver's side. It's definitely job conscious thinking in a lot of aspects. This profession that we're in, I feel has made all of us, you can speak to it too, hyper vigilant in a situation when you're not even at work you're sitting in a in a restaurant and you hear someone coughing you stop and you look and you're sitting there and you're waiting it's like keep coughing keep coughing okay you're breathing good back to your meal you're sitting at a at a pool and you you see that one kid go under the water and you're like one two three four okay surface we're good you're at a beach and you're always kind of scanning. It's like, okay, if I need an AED, where's the closest AED? Where's my water rescue stuff? I feel like that when I'm in certain situations, I try and turn it off. But at the same time, like you're always hyper vigilant. Yeah, it's good to build a, I guess if you're going to have habits, if your brain's going to go there, then at least build a couple habits that can put your mind at peace when you're in these situations so that you can turn it off so to speak and not always be in that mode because it has physiological effects on your body and long-term effects so if you're in fight and flight at all times uh, no one's going to survive very long and and not only do we want to have a just a healthy life in general but if we love the job then we want to be able to keep doing it as long as we can especially in an ems world where it's it's really really tough physically and mentally to make a full career yeah they say the average lifespan of a paramedic is five years in the profession wow 
well, I'm at five years. So yeah. Well, hopefully the new patient movement devices like the strikers and that are going to be uh, extending that. There's a lot of factors that go into it. Do you have aspirations moving ahead to ACP or full-time fire? What are your goals moving ahead? My aspirations have always been to be a full-time firefighter ever since I was a little kid. I was that kid that said they wanted to be a firefighter and grew up, I guess. And that all stems back to like living around the corner from a fire station everywhere we lived. We were in Owen Sound, a couple blocks away from the fire station, and my mom and I would always go on a walk with her her girlfriend that lived na- like next door or down the road. And we'd walk by the fire station on those summer nights, and the doors would be up, the guys would be out, and I would beeline it right for the trucks. And those guys had no problem showing me around, let me sit in the driver's seat all the time. They knew my mom, my name. They knew her, her friend, my name. Looking back now, they might have been hitting on her, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, the aspirations have been there to always pursue full-time fire. Recently, I got pretty close with career recruitment, farthest I ever got to the last stage, and unfortunately, I got cut. But it is what it is, and you pick your head up, and you, you go on to the next one, and then I contemplated on uh, doing ACP. I was enrolled in, in Cambrian, and then I got uh, offered my full-time position, and I had to unfortunately decline the, uh, the offer of acceptance to uh, pursue the full-time position. Since working in uh, RAM, I've taken on the community paramedic program, and I've started exploring that aspect of the job and kind of opening up another door there strictly for the aid of the community and a potential career if I ever get injured because that's the unfortunate thing I have to think about if I get injured on the job like what else do I fall back on right I I can't do a, a desk job I'm not a desk guy I've always been manual labor doing something with my hands doing whatever and if I hurt my back at least I know I can go still be a community paramedic while rehabbing and, and doing patient care per se and 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 doing those care plans for these different clients within the community and, and doing the prevention side of, of community health paramedicine. 2018, you sort of, I'm not sure if you're still involved, maybe explain it to me about uh, politics and local council and trying to benefit the community and emergency services in that aspect. So maybe talk to me about that. Back in 2018 there in my hometown of South Bruce Peninsula, the time I was working on the air ambulance, there was a, a huge need for EMS presence in Sobel Beach. So Sobel didn't have an ambulance. And up until I think two years ago now, one of the biggest tourist destinations in the entire province, and they were left without coverage for, well, if you were in Wyarton at station, you're 25 minutes to the downtown intersection in Sobel Beach and no traffic code for And a high volume drownings in that area too, right? Yeah. And the year I was running, I believe there was four or five drownings during just the election campaign. And that was from, I believe, July to October. So that's a lot of drownings for A, South Bruce Peninsula Fire doesn't have a water rescue team. They're a dry foot department. B, no ambulance around for at least 20 to 25 minutes, pending that they're at the station and not on a call already, and see if it was witnessed. So we don't have a water rescue team anywhere. You don't have bystanders with equipment available. There's no lifeguards. And these are different things that I was talking with community about. And there was a small community meeting that we held in Sobel at a local establishment there. And, and the biggest 
point of contention was we don't have anybody to save us. What happens? Do I feel safe going out in the water and if no one's coming? And that really struck a chord with me. And there was a few like-minded individuals. And I said, you know what? I might run for council. I might run for council and then try and bring that to the table. And they all said, well, you work in emergency services. You'd be the perfect person to bring this through. And I'm like, yeah, well, kind of always thought about being part of municipal politics. I've watched my dad fight many bills that have tried to pass in our, our local council chambers and that would have affected thousands of people and succeed. So having my dad to kind of back me up on that and him saying, do it, dude. Like you, you've got the personality for it. You can talk to people and you have no problem going door to door and finding out these people's issues. And you're the one that wants to help people. That's why you do what you do. I always have that desire to help. And I think being a, a counselor in, in a municipality is one of the best things that someone can do without per se getting in the line of fire and risking your life, but still helping a large volume of people because the decisions that you make can hinder or benefit a town. And I have always thought that they would benefit for the most part. With the council in South Bruce Peninsula at the time, there was a, a definite shift going on. It's always kind of been like an old boys, old girls club, and they wanted to see some young representation. So there was myself and another guy and another gal that were all running in different positions. And me and the other guy were running for council. Oh, and I guess, yeah, Anne was also running for council at the time. She ran for deputy mayor this last uh, election. Unfortunately, didn't get in. But all three of us were the young faces kind of coming into council. And at the time, I think I was 23, 24, something like that. And had I got in, I would have been the youngest councillor to make it to the table. And even still today, if I were to run in the last election, I would still be the youngest councillor. But I, I ran on those platform ideas of A, water rescue and ambulance service to Sobel and working with the county to make that happen even on a trial period, just to see what their call volume would be for a base there. And B, parking passes for all the residents that pay taxes, because God forbid you can even park in that town without paying 20 bucks. Well, if I'm paying taxes to maintain those roads and beaches, I want to use that beach without having to pay 20 bucks. It just goes back into nothing. And at the time, the mayor that we had, not a lot of people liked her, somehow still got in because she enacted the bylaw in place that allowed people that owned seasonal camps in the trailer parks were able to vote, which I've never seen anywhere outside of our township, but you do you, you pass that bylaw, by all means, enact that bylaw. I'm hoping that the, the new council that's currently in revisits that bylaw, maybe takes that away because that's one way to swing a vote really easily when you've got I think it was eight different seasonal campgrounds within the township. And each of those has anywhere from three to 800 sites. You probably double the size of the area, the population over the summer months. Easily. They, they estimate that Sobble Beach sees anywhere from 800,000 to a million people come through it per year. Yeah, you could use a couple ambulances for that. Yeah, in a little town of 3,500 people, yeah, you probably could use one. I always remember as a kid, my parents lived in a little hamlet of Hepworth. We even were trying to fight to get a fire station there because of how busy the intersection is and how many homes that were there. And there was seven or eight guys on the fire department that lived in Hepworth. 
we would always see the wire and ambulance coming through town. You know, you'd be sitting out on the deck having a, a drink in the summer and then you'd hear the sirens and you knew it was the, the ambulance heading for the beach. And yeah, sure enough, you hear the siren, you get up, you look, oh, there goes the ambulance on the way to Sobble. And then 10 minutes, 20 minutes later, oh, here it comes back, heading towards Wyarton, lights and sirens, or going to one sound for a stroke or anything like that. But yeah, we we had all these aspirations that were put into place, and, and I brought these ideas to the table. And then, unfortunately, I didn't get in. I lost by a little bit. Not much, but a little bit. I think it's less than a couple hundred votes. The people that were supporting me were still supporting me from after the election was done they said you still need to pursue this this is a good idea and fortunately we did pursue it i wrote a letter to county council and everything and i said this is what needs to happen and i talked with the chief of paramedic services in bruce county and i said you need to investigate this and then uh, eventually there was a trial and the ambulance was placed out of the fire station there and they had a camper trailer that they were using as their base and they were a day car from I don't know, I think it was a two to two day car in the beginning. And then I think it went to a 12 to 12 or something. And then 11 to 11, I, I don't know, I don't work for Bruce. They ended up doing that trial and they found that it worked. And then now they've allocated some funds to build a permanent station in, in Sabo. So in all in all, it was good. It really got the wheels turning. It's definitely something that needs to be in people's awareness. I don't think often is that uh, they get spoiled always if you're living in the city, you always just assume or take for granted that there's EMS close by. And perhaps maybe only the EM, people in EMS realize that once you get north, if you've done any interior camping or, I mean, you just you just drive north for a couple hours, it doesn't necessarily work that way anymore. And either it's a long time until someone comes or no one's coming, right? And it's on you. So you really have to take some personal ownership and accountability. So it's not very often on people's radar when they drive up for their vacation in the north of Ontario or whatever province they or state they end up in to think about if something goes wrong, which isn't always something you want to think about when you go on vacation, but it should be that one thought about if this, then what, right? Yeah, absolutely. And a prime example is where I work full time. Our transport to hospitals, 108 kilometers. We're gone. There's no ambulance for two hours at minimum. And a lot of people don't really see that. Recently, last year, the, the community kind of was eye-open to the fact that they wanted to downstaff our station, and as well as another station, just due to the low call volume. We were one of the lower call volumes in the service, and they wanted to drop us down to a PRU, or primary response unit with one paramedic in it. And the people that lived in the area all kind of banded together. They went to the news, they wrote the MPP and all this, because they realized they're screwed. If we're sitting there and you need rapid transport to hospital and you only have a PRU, that's it's not good. You know, I ran into it a couple times this summer where staffing crisis and everything, partners sick or, you know, they're on vacation and you're downstaffed or they had to go to another another station to fill a seat in a higher volume station. I was by myself and I ran, it was like five calls by myself in like a less than 12 hour period. And for me in where i work yeah sure some city guys are like ah, five calls whatever big deal well call for me is two four hours long depending if i transport right and i'm running 60 kilometers one way 60 kilometers the other way and i don't have backup 
lucky enough that I have the volunteer guys to come with me on these calls and stuff if I need them. And prime example, we got that night, we got a call for the SA down in the backwoods of a camp that was probably, you know, 30, 40 minute drive just for me. And then my partner that was coming was the commander from Timmins. And he was going to pair up with me because I had a full ambulance, but just one paramedic and we were going to run the call. And unfortunate enough, I was calling for the Foliette fire guys to come. And on the way to the call, I uh, was told to give dispatch a call. So I stopped and called them on my phone and they said, yeah, there was a, an MVC behind you. Can you turn around and go to that? We'll keep the commander going to the other call. And that was the reality of it. You know, now there's a second call in my area. I'm by myself. We've got to make a decision. Do I go to the person that's potentially dead or do I go to this MVC and get started? Well, they send another ambulance from somewhere else. Right. So, and then on top of that, Timmins is busier than all hell. And they're down staffed two trucks at night for 40,000 people. So you take the commander out of town. Now you're taking the ambulance out of town. And now there's one truck for 40,000 people. Well, that's dangerously low for population-wise coverage to ambulance ratio. And fortunately, the person that we were going to originally was not VSA, but the guy that was launched his truck into the bush was critical. And we have a policy in place that allows firefighters to drive our truck. So I loaded him into my truck and told firefighter, I was like, get me to the hospital. And thankfully, I did that because the crew that was coming from... Shaplo ended up getting hit on a call in Brunswick House for a machete attack, another critical call. <laughs> they ended up getting orange. So, I mean, a lot can happen at 1.30 in the morning, apparently. And just, you don't work in that emergency services environment. You don't understand how quickly your resources can be taken like that. Yeah, I mean, this is a, at risk of telling a back-in-the-day story, that, but it was, it was back in the day. There were a few nights where my partner and I were the only ambulance in Peel Region. That's an awareness that we have inside the service that possibly the public isn't aware of. So more awareness for the public of you would hope through COVID that they would understand the the heavy impact on the medical care system, medics included. But hopefully the the awareness can continue and obviously the, the paramedics and the firefighters can continue to, to get the support that they need. Like you said, there's no worse feeling in the world than having the red phone at the base ring or you're out in your truck and they tone you out for a code eight and they say three zero nine nine, you are now the only ambulance available for the entire County. Great. So where are we going? (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, man. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. I'm glad we finally connected. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm looking forward to it.